We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Blue Skies. Today, we're fortunate to have a guest who's a distinguished Canadian and I'm proud to call a friend. He's a lawyer a former cabinet minister, a former diplomat, a business leader, a thought leader, a husband, a father, a proud Albertan, and I can say from having stayed at his house, a fantastic chef as well. We've got Gary Marr on the program with us today, and he's the president of the Canada West Foundation and has been the CEO of the foundation since April of 2020. Previous to that, he worked directly in the energy sector as president and CEO of the Petroleum Services Association of Canada. And that came after a distinguished and long career as a public servant, both as an elected official and a diplomatic role for his province. He was an MLA in Alberta from 1993 to 2007. He served in all of the key portfolios really, and was known as a competent minister that you wanted on a file, community de development, health, education, the two biggies provincially, environment, and international relations for Alberta. Many of us and many Albertans call him the best premier Alberta never had, you know, a term that sometimes I've heard recently as well. After that, uh, that time in public office, he served in a diplomatic function as the representative for Alberta in Washington from 2007 to 2011, and in Asia from 2011 to 2015, looking out for the provincial issues, working closely with Canada's diplomatic corps, and really making sure that there was capital investment and global awareness of the energy and agriculture potential for Alberta. So today, we're very fortunate to blue sky Western issues with the Honourable Gary Marr. Welcome, Gary. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here today, Aaron. Well, I know we're going to have a good conversation because uh, you are known to be a happy warrior in politics and a bit of a policy wonk, but a, a cool policy wonk, I will say. Let's start out because I know uh, a lot of my listeners would be in the Laurentian region, to quote Bricker and Ibbotson here, and they may not be familiar with the Canada West Foundation and the work you're doing. So give us a, a few minutes on the origins of the Canada West Foundation and its purpose and your mission today. The Canada West Foundation is one of Canada's oldest public policy think tanks. We've been around for more than half a century, started in 1971. Uh, there were four Western Canadians who decided uh, that uh, the interests of Canada's four Western provinces were not being uh, considered as deeply as they ought to have been uh, by a central Canadian government. And so the Honourable James Richardson, uh, who was a Liberal cabinet minister, uh, together with uh, three Albertans, uh, uh, the Mannix family, uh, the uh, Arthur Childs uh, group, and uh, also um, uh, the, uh, oh goodness gracious, I've forgotten the fourth one now. Uh, they put together uh, a pool of money uh, to decide to create the Canada West Foundation, which was intended to promote policies that promote the West, and by extension, uh, all of Canada. So a strong West within a strong Canada. And so we've been on that mission for the last 
50 years. Uh, we have three major centers that we focus on in terms of our public policy, uh, natural resources, uh, human capital, and uh, trade and trade investment. So, um, so it's, it's, it's really uh, a remarkable, it's, it's got a remarkable history and, uh, and, and continues our good work uh, uh, in these areas. And we comment on a lot of things, uh, things that you've comment on, uh, commented on as well, Aaron, in terms of things that are important to Canada. Uh, it may be on energy, it may be on agriculture, it may be on the Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, there are a whole host of things that we cover. And most notably, as, as you've uh, recently written about uh, the whole issue uh, in the federal budget about uh, major project infrastructure being completed. So uh, that's a broad summary. We, we do a lot of stuff. We've got a team of about 20 people and, and uh, uh, we are small, but uh, extremely devoted to our craft. You are. And uh, some of the public policy ideas and proposals you put forward are, are you know, very thoughtful and very highly regarded. And you're coming to Ontario. You're in Edmonton right now, the city of champions, and you're coming to Toronto. Uh, so already working with, with Premier Ford and other provinces on advancing a mandate. As you said, strong Western Canada means a strong, united and prosperous Canada. Let's look at that timeline, though, Gary, because what's interesting, so Canada West Foundation stood up in 1971 to address already perceived you know, lack of awareness, lack of understanding in the center of Canada with respect to the needs of Western Canada. But look at the timeline since then. You know, we had the, the rise of the Reform Party and the West wants in in the 80s and 90s. Today, in the last five, six years, we've had uh, Wexit. We've had kind of separation movements. Now we have a, a large debate about autonomy and maybe Alberta, Saskatchewan going solo on few things and and squabbling over Section 91, 92 of the Constitution. I raised alienation in Western Canada in my first meeting with, with Prime Minister Trudeau as opposition leader, and the Globe and Mail largely, uh, largely mocked that concept. Is that because even with these efforts, there's still such an approach to national public policy making from the perspective of the Laurentian elite of, of Ontario and Quebec and and have you been able to counter some of this disaffection or what what what's your view on the state of of Western alienation and is it real and what can we do as Canadians to to help address it well let me say this uh, the sense that I think uh, particularly Alberta Saskatchewan to a lesser degree British Columbia uh, has, uh, with respect to how the federal government operates is is this. If we were to drive from Windsor to um, Quebec City, the majority of Canadians live in that corridor. And the sense that uh, people in Alberta and Saskatchewan have is that if you have a government that's focused on electoral um, success, they're focusing their policies where the majority of Canadians reside. They're not looking at the country as a whole. And yet, and, and there's good examples of that. Take, for example, um, you know, when the federal government uh, decided to go forward with the CETA agreement, a free trade agreement with Europe, uh, the major partners to that would come from central Canada. So the federal government actually did a deep dive economic analysis as to what the, um, you know, what the economic outcomes and opportunities would be if they signed CETA. Once they signed CETA, then they did 
uh, a deep dive analysis into the kind of infrastructure that was required to breathe life uh, into the, the free trade agreement. By comparison, if you look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, your listeners will recall that the, you know, the Prime Minister nearly walked away from the TPP, uh, leaving Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, waiting for a meeting in Tokyo. Um, they never did an economic analysis of what it would mean to be a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The work was actually done by the Canada West Foundation. And based on the strength of the data, um, I think that's what persuaded the federal government to come back to be a member of the TPP. And it's notable that the largest economic impact uh, from the TPP would have been with the four Western provinces, which are huge net exporters to the region, uh, whereas Ontario and Quebec are net importers from that region. And so there's a big difference. And, and, and then after um, the Canadian government came back to join the TPP, there's no analysis done on the, uh, on the trade infrastructure required, again, uh, ports, roads, bridges, rail, pipelines, uh, you know, LNG, and so on, uh, to be able to breathe life into the TPP. Um, so that was done by the Canada West Foundation. We continue to uh, work on the idea of building a national uh, trade infrastructure, having a plan for Canada that looks at projects that are shovel worthy as opposed to merely being shovel ready. And so we continue to work and we continue to hope to have influence on, uh, on policy. The most recent piece uh, that's similar to the TPP is the whole uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, which I know you've also written about. Yes. Well, listen, your work, um, I really became a fan of the Canada West Foundation when I was Parliamentary Secretary for Trade working on the TPP, as you said, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I went to Seoul for our first free trade agreement in Asia, which was with South Korea, as you remember. And getting access for Alberta beef was our critical trade objective because Australia was there first and we were seeing us lose market share. Um, you, you, you mentioned walking away from the TPP. People may forget Prime Minister Trudeau actually didn't show up to the meeting, to the, to the leaders meeting in Vietnam. And that's where uh, Shinzo Abe, as you said, was extremely upset with Canada, but also headlines in Australia, New Zealand, usually our closest friends, Five Eyes, saying what's happened to Canada. We did engage and we did sign on, and he'll refer to it as the CPTPP, the Comprehensive Progressive uh, uh, Trade Agreement. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the essentials were already previously negotiated by the Conservatives. And as you said, that infrastructure that's needed to access the Indo-Pacific and to see really our Pacific future is in the future going to eclipse our Atlantic history as an Atlantic, as a NATO, as a the linchpin, linchpin as Churchill called us, between uh, Europe and, and North America. We put in more port infrastructure in Vancouver, but Canadians always hear about the, the grain shipment challenges on our rail lines. Like, are we so adequately, inadequately prepared to take advantage of this Pacific trade pivot, in your view? So uh, a couple of pieces, I'll say, first of all. I'll say, first of all, uh, Canadians should be asking, is there a role for Canada to help make the world a safer, more secure, and greener place? 
if Canadians think that the answer is yes, then there's three things that Canada's really, really good at that can contribute to that. It's fuel, it's fertilizer, and it's food. Those three things, Canada really has tremendous capacity. Now, with respect to our infrastructure, as I said earlier, if you can't move it, you can't sell it. I mean, this is really important to note that in 2011, um, the uh, World Economic Forum did a, um, uh, a review of the reliability of trade infrastructure. They surveyed customers all over the world. Canada has gone from being 11th in the world to number 32 in terms of trade reliability. Oh. And that's not us saying that. That's the people that, uh, you know, that are our customers saying that. And very little has been done with respect to the federal government's uh, sort of acknowledgement of this issue. The United States, by comparison, has dropped, I think, from number 12 to number 14. And they are spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on their infrastructure. The Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, the Secretary of Transportation in the U.S., is making announcements all over the place saying we are upgrading, mm -hmm. you know, our rail, our roads, our ports our airports and so on and so forth in order to make sure that we are not behind. And we've got to keep track of what's happening in the United States because they're not just our biggest trade partner. They're also our biggest trade competitor. And so we've got to, we've got to really follow what goes on in the United States in order to keep pace uh, with what they're doing so that we can uh, breathe life into all of the opportunities uh, that, uh, that Canada has uh, you know, for, you know, for example, working in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah, no, you say that about the U.S. I, I love how you phrased it. They are our closest trading partner, our closest security ally, but they are our competitor on all major fronts. When, when we had the NAFTA negotiation, um, you may recall the Trudeau government, Ms. Freeland in particular, had the so-called progressive trade agenda where they were going to talk about all these non-trade issues, social issues, in the context of negotiations with President Trump. What the Conservatives, and I was the critic, advocated for was energy, auto, and transportation. Make it easier uh, to, to move goods around North America, a fortress North America approach. We were already talking about uh, the changing regulatory standard in terms of EV and emissions for vehicles. Um, Look at all those issues are the top issues that Biden's talking about. And we had an opportunity to be first mover in the renegotiation of NAFTA, but the liberals couldn't resist the virtue signaling and the media, which unfortunately was more focused on Trump as the negotiation opponent, as opposed to what was Canada's strategic issue or interests, uh, claimed we got a good deal when it was actually disastrous from uh, from a competitive standpoint for Canada. So I loved how you said fuel, fertilizer, and food. Let's talk about the strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for Western Canada. SWOT analysis. Take us through those. Obviously, fuel, energy, LNG. You know, decarbonizing globally needs to have Canadian LNG at the forefront for the next several decades. Um, then we can see nuclear and a whole range of other technologies also being a part of that. But I, I think let's leave that for the third thing you'll discuss. Talk about fertilizer and food first, because I don't think a lot of folks in my area, in the Durham region, would understand how critical Canadian products and Canadian commodities are for the global food security and, 
and global agriculture? Well, uh, I have a theory, and that theory is that every country in the world is just a few missed meals away from the start of a revolution. I mean, I would refer people to the Arab Spring, starting over the price of uh, you know food in a market in Tunisia. And so Canada is one of the few countries in the world that is food secure. That is to say, we produce more food than we consume. So we are net exporters of food uh, by a wide margin. And if you look at, you know, a lot of our exports to, you know, uh, throughout the world, uh, commodities are an important part of it. Value added is an increasingly important part of it. Uh, But look at our grains, uh, look at canola, look at wheat. Look at pulses that go from Saskatchewan uh, to India. This is, we are a food superpower. And associated with that, uh, in agriculture, it's not just food and value-added products. It's also skills and technology and equipment that we export as well. There's a great story from southern Saskatchewan. Uh, uh, The member of parliament, uh, Jeremy Patzer, worked on a bipartisan basis with uh, you know, then Minister Navit Baines to make sure that the, um, you know, the agricultural equipment business uh, was really, really robust. And we nearly lost that business because of an attempt by, uh, you know, U.S. authorities to create a monopoly by locking out uh, Canadian um, equipment from the computers of, you know, uh, tractors like John Deere's. So, um, mm-hmm. so we've got a great story to tell. In terms of our exports, it is a big, big part of our GDP on agriculture, and there's a growing demand, and particularly in places like Asia, where there is a growing middle class. That growing middle class not only demands more food; they demand different types of food. Uh, Increasingly, uh, as you move up um, into the middle class, you're demanding more proteins, not just grains. And so, um, if you look at our our protein exports of, of beef and pork that comes from Manitoba, uh, you know, this is a, an important part of our of our um, uh, of our exports, and goes to the view that you know, if Canada wants to help make this a more secure, safe world, uh, food is going to be a very important part of it. And look at what happened uh, to places in Africa, you know, when grain shipments from Ukraine were suddenly shut down. Um, you know, Ukraine is a huge producer of wheat, uh, but that, you know, that the, uh, the, the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the stoppage of grain shipments coming from there had a profound impact on, uh, on nations uh, that, uh, that relied on that, on that grain and sent them scrambling. And this is, again, particularly in Africa, to try and find supply. Canada can be an important part of helping make this a safer, more secure world uh, if we have the ability to get our products to market. Yeah, I think you've highlighted something that years ago when we were looking at food security issues, we didn't factor in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which is another agricultural powerhouse. You talked about Africa and and uh, you know, Middle East countries like Egypt that were scrambling because most of their food sources came from Ukraine. Canada has the ability to step in. I also found when we were doing TPP negotiations and I went to South Korea, as you said, not only is there more of a demand 
in that growing middle class, tens of millions in the Indo-Pacific joining the middle class each year. They also want to source it from countries that have strong regulatory uh, uh, measures so that the food is trusted. And it's great, like Canadian beef, pork in in markets in, in Asia. And when China had the swine flu, they were forced to cave on blocking of port exports during the Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei incident, because they were, as you said, in China, a few missed meals away from from instability on the ground. Are these markets really the future for for ag in the growing Indo-Pacific? And uh, we're already a big player. Can we really make serious gains if we can get the infrastructure built for trade to reach those markets? Well, uh, let's look at the federal government's 26-page Indo-Pacific strategy. They they list 40 countries in it, but I, I wouldn't be quite that ambitious. The countries they list include North Korea. So I would look at the 16 economies uh, that, uh, that Canada really uh, could play a role in, um, a- as opposed to the 40 countries that are listed. So um, the short answer is yes. I mean, we have opportunity there. Um, but it's not just about improving market access to new countries. It's also about surviving market access. And so we've seen non-tariff barriers come up in other places, including the United States. I mean, people would recall back in 2006, uh, something called uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy or BSC, uh, which was more commonly called mad cow disease. Um, You know, there was really not much scientific basis for the United States putting up a non-tariff barrier on Canadian beef exports to the United States. Um, but eventually, the, the issue was overcome by the fact that um, the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, Secretary Johans, uh, had been a former governor and had been a friend of Ralph Klein's. And so on a subnational government basis, sometimes solutions can be found subnationally and that's what reopened the beef markets to uh, to the United States from Canada uh, was this personal relationship and so we shouldn't uh, not everything needs to be done by the federal government in this regard but um, provinces working with their state counterparts can make a difference the United States as we've said is our largest trade partner um, but there you know uh, 38 US states describe Canada as being their largest export. Uh, market. So uh, there is really a, a great relationship there. We've seen non, non-tariff barriers put up on canola in China. We've seen non-tariff barriers put up in India. Uh, we can learn something from the Australians in this regard. Uh, They're very proactive about you know trying to um, sort of uh, identify and head off at the pass, as it were, uh, NTBs that come up from other countries that are there uh, their markets, uh, we should probably be doing the same thing. So should we be looking at all 16 um, economies uh, that are part of the Indo-Pacific? Probably not. We should prioritize them, which you know, which are the most important ones, and really focus on them and also be proactive about making sure that we uh, can deal with non-tariff barriers and survive market access, not just create more market access. Yeah, no, and uh, that perspective of 
being the former representative of Alberta and Washington has given you insight on how important those subnational relationships are, state to state, province to state, uh, to advance the national interest, and and you were a key part of that. So let's go to the second F now, fertilizer. Um, many Canadians might know about potash and our strength as one of the major producers, but how is there an opportunity here? Because Russia is a a the key player in terms of of global fertilizer, and and that's a critical part of food security. And in fact, there's some people like Peter Zehan and and other geopolitical strategists warning about um, we haven't seen the food insecurity yet because Russia will ramp up their trade restrictions and their export restrictions uh, this summer, he believes. And there could be increased uh, scarcity of of fertilizer. So you're going to see reduced yield in the countries that can trade how can Canada step up here and play a key role and and raise our GDP at the same same well, time? Uh, so it it really is a tremendous opportunity, but it does require trade infrastructure to be able to move what we can produce and get it to markets reliably. And so, uh, is there anything that we can do in the short term? Uh, maybe not, but. I mean, let's not miss out the opportunity over the medium and long term by being short sighted. Uh, would be my view. So uh, being able to move potash, uh, being able to move the things that we produce is not only good for Canada, uh, you know, economically, it's good for the world and helps contribute to uh, a more peaceful and secure world. So um, are are there things that we can do in the short run? Maybe not. Uh, Are there things that we can do in the medium and long term? The answer is yes. But it requires uh, a more immediate and urgent need uh, to deal with uh, tie-ups in our uh, in our infrastructure, and you've already commented that you know uh, people that uh, listen to your podcast in uh, Central Canada, you know they they might have heard of things like uh, tie-ups for grain shipments or um, or uh, you know other other rail transportation or uh, you know trying to move commodities to marketplaces. Um, that problem is real, and uh, to me, one of the I mean, I noted in your <laughs> in your in your commentary that your mom said, "If you can't say something nice, don't say it at all." Um, you know, my mom gave me the same advice, and so I'll give uh, I'll, I'll say this about the federal government's budget in broad terms. Uh, there was there was a lot of spending there, but not much sense of how you create the revenue to be able to afford that spending. And so it does strike me that I give I give the federal government credit for one thing, which is taking the lead on trying to knock down interprovincial tra- uh, interprovincial trade barriers within Canada. If we if we didn't have such barriers, uh, economists estimate that that could result in a boost of three to four percent, um, you know, on the GDP of Canada. That's a good thing. Uh, and then if we actually focused on trade infrastructure, we could also increase our GDP. Now, uh, by increasing the GDP, you increase the revenue uh, that is available to government. And so I would say as a priority, you should be paying for the things, uh, you should be paying for the infrastructure that, cr- that grows the GDP, that creates the revenue, that allows you to pay for the things that you want to put money into be it healthcare, be it education, 
um, you know, uh, being support for people who are, um, you know, that are in need of support in our, in our country. Um, but grow the GDP, invest in the infrastructure that grows that GDP to be able to create the revenue to pay for the things that Canadians really want and, and need. Well said. And long term, the increasing that infrastructure, really creating reliable trade corridors allows us to ramp things up over time and it will consistently raise GDP over time, particularly as the Indo-Pacific continues to grow. And right now we're still not equipped to take really advantage of that, that market. Um, okay. Let's, let's, you know, talk about the last F uh, the most important really for, you know, the strength of the economy in Western Canada and Canada. I, I often say the, the global slowdown um, of 2008, 2009, and the years afterwards, the only thing that kept Canada uh, above water and really leaving the G7 was the strength of energy prices uh, in that time frame and the billions in net contribution from Alberta, from Saskatchewan, um, in, and Manitoba a little bit, um, over time has meant that our energy sector is such a net positive for the country Yet the policies out of Ottawa in recent years have tried to discourage growth in that sector, uh, prevent market access if you're looking at pipeline cancellations. Um, how is that issue specifically related to the alienation? And, and we can talk a little bit about the budget in a minute, but Bill C-69, which was changes to impact assessment, which is not just environmental review, but also social review. And we remember Prime Minister Trudeau talking about, you know, those those dozens of uh, construction men in, in rural parts of the country and, and the risks they were to communities. It, it got to a sense that I think many Westerners felt that the rules were being set so high and so difficult to overcome that it was really an effort to stop or to shut down the oil sands, which some of the, even some of the MPs and ministers in the in the Trudeau government had had advocated for before they became politicians. So, is that change to environmental and impact assessment really the the key element of this latest wave of alienation, whether it wecks it, whether it separation. Um, and and do you see any effort to to change that? I know that's a lot there, but I've I've in my travels in Western Canada and why I launched my 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 second leadership in Alberta was to address just this sense that Ottawa was holding the region back. I, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, I think that you know the, the federal government is focused only on uh, meeting their targets uh, under the Paris Accord. And there's no understanding that while the energy sector is a large uh, contributor, the largest sector contributor to GHGs in, in the country, it's also where the solutions emanate from. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's really notable to go back to my original sort of thesis that uh, Canada can play a role in making this not only a safer, more secure world, but also a greener world. 
there were 162 new coal-fired power plants approved in China in 2022. And, you know, if we were able to move LNG uh, from Canada to um, particularly to Asia, we could dramatically reduce the GHG emissions in the global atmosphere. You know, there's no, there's no Canadian atmosphere, there's no Alberta atmosphere, but there is a global atmosphere. And uh, if you can use it to displace coal, depending on the sector, it could be textiles, it could be, um, it could be electricity, it could be chemical, um, chemical industry, that you can reduce the GHGs uh, in China by taking Canadian LNG there and reduce their emissions by between 32 and 60 percent. And this would be this would be a significant improvement because even if we shut down all GHGs coming from Canada, it wouldn't make up for the 162 power plants that are going to be running coal in China, um, you know, in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So this is part of the reason why LNG is important. And when you look at when you look at oil, let's look at the world's largest you know reserves in the world. Uh, number one, Venezuela. Number two, Saudi Arabia. Number three, Canada. Followed by Iran, Iraq, and the Russian Federation. I mean, by my count, there's only one Western <laughs> liberal democracy of the group. And if you look at that's it's the rogue it's the rogues gallery in Canada, right? <laughs> and so, where would you get not only certainty for capital and low political risk? in this age of ESG, environmental social governance, that's the only country in there that you can trust well, on any I mean, of those that, measures. That's, that's what are called reserves. Uh, I would argue that Canada has the number one uh, body of reserves in the world that you can audit. So let's start with that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the U.S. Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, if you look at the International Energy Agency out of Paris, they all say, uh, and it doesn't matter whose analysis, we're going to be using fossil fuels for a long time, like decades from now. So that leads me to what the prime minister said when Chancellor Schultz uh, was here looking for LNG. He said, I haven't seen a business case for LNG. Well, uh, Chancellor Schultz might suggest otherwise, but when Prime Minister Kishida uh, from Japan was in Ottawa. He was asking for the same thing. We've seen the same uh, request for LNG out of the uh, the uh, presidents of South Korea. So uh, is there a business case? Well, first of all, I'd say it's actually not the prime minister's job to determine if there is a business case. That's the private sector's job to determine, are we going to be using LNG or fossil fuels in into 2050, 2060, 2070? And then they can make the decisions about whether or not there's a business case and whether they should invest billions of dollars uh, in an LNG facility off the west coast of British Columbia. Um, and so the prime minister has offered up hydrogen. Um, and we don't have any hydrogen plants here in Canada yet. Um, but it does strike me that if you want to be a trusted supplier of future energy like hydrogen, you better be a trusted supplier of the energy that's available today, like LNG or like oil. And so uh, to go back to your question about, is this part of the angst that Western Canadians feel about 
uh, you know, being alienated, they, they get the sense that the federal government doesn't really understand or appreciate the role um, that the energy sector can play in terms of, one, lowering GHG emissions throughout the world, and two, the fact that we do it from a place that is a, a you know, a, a democratic a democratic country uh, that has EHG, ESG characteristics that are quite different um, than the other major, um, you know, supplies of oil in the world. And, and so I think that um, th- this is a, a partial contribution to Western alienation. Maybe the other part of it is that there is, and there are, and you uh, as a lawyer would have studied constitutional law. I mean, interestingly, I, I studied constitutional law under Anne McClellan, uh, the former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, and <laughs> there are divisions of power under our Constitution. And so a second cause of angst for Western Canadians is that the federal government, and, and you can see this in the whole uh, Supreme Court of Canada decision, uh, there is an encroachment on provincial heads of power uh, that are laid out in the Constitution. This also creates angst for Western Canadians. They might not frame it that way, but they would. There is a sense that the federal government treats the provinces like mere stakeholders and not real, uh, and not real uh, partners in confederation. And uh, you know the the case uh, laid out by uh, the lawyers for the government of Canada before the Supreme Court really didn't talk about heads of power. They talked about how we've evolved into a cooperative federalism. Well, I don't recall any single Canadian that got a vote on that kind of constitutional change. And that's the sort of thing that, again, um, Canadians might not frame it that way, but they, they they get a sense of it, that there's been a change that they don't like, even if, even if they're not experts on the Constitution. And that gives uh, Western Canadians some angst. And it should give all Canadians some angst that, that the federal government seems to say, well, if we say it's our jurisdiction, then it's our jurisdiction. That's not how the Constitution reads. Yes, and I think of all federal governments, um, Justin Trudeau's federal government has been the most paternalistic with respect to this. There, There is a sense that the the federal government is the parent and the provincial governments are somehow the children and the tone and the, the plan will be set by the federal government when actually if you respect sections 91 and 92, um, our federation was forged to make sure that uh, there was distinct domain and, and you were a former health minister and education, two key parts of, of provincial jurisdiction, but there was a range of areas of shared jurisdiction and shared jurisdiction does not mean the federal government tells the other jurisdiction what to do and they therefore work together. It has to be a way of, of, of combining on that. And certainly there are impacts from pollution and other things going back, you know, 30 years in the Supreme Court jurisprudence. But now that we have an approach to lower our greenhouse gas emissions, and I I think there's public good in that, it has to be done collaboratively, respecting shared jurisdiction and respecting the the economic potential of regions of the country. That can't be robbed from them um, in in a regulatory burden. Um, So it's been interesting to see, you know, this 
this issue evolve. And as you said, Canada's potential to play a global leadership role. I've had Chris Sublicki, who you may know from Western Canada, on my podcast. Even uh, my most recent one, James Skoniak, talking, uh, he's from Bruce Power, talking about nuclear and the potential for LNG, nuclear energy, uh, and renewables. Like Canada and our technology and our skill set could be a major player because when Ontario reduced its coal burning for electricity generation, as you said, in the time frame that Ontario took its, I think, uh, eight gigawatts off the system, 10 times that went on the system from new coal generation in China, in Indonesia, especially. And so where can, you know, the West, the global North, where can the advanced countries play a role in technology and then play a role in in lower carbon emission energy. And as you said, Canada as the ESGI superpower, the the one that is also engaging indigenous communities as partners, we should be the preferred energy source for for the West and for growing countries that want to take climate change seriously. So listen, on the on the budget, you know, I, I, you read my piece and you referenced it. I, I did say good things about the budget, um, especially Blake Richards and, and Todd Doherty's measures on the, the suicide prevention hotline and and leave for parents who, who lose an infant uh, stillborn or just before birth. So there were some good measures in the budget. But the secret page of the budget that you and I have talked about Page 92 seems to be, you know, we're not going to get this uh, really wide, but get getting major projects done. And I just ran into Harold Calla from the First Nation uh, Major Projects Coalition on the weekend, and we were talking about page 92. This is almost a billion and a half in expenditures meant at expediting impact assessment and project review expediting it after Bill C-69 from 2018-2019 slowed down the process. So do you see this as a turning point where even the Liberal government realizes they went way too far and that capital has fled, projects are kind of held up, and that push that Biden gave us on the critical minerals side will actually have positive impacts for everything from energy development to I mean, this is something that we're working on uh, very hard at Canada West Foundation. I mean, we've followed the Supreme Court of Canada uh, case uh, on uh, Bill C-69, the Impact Assessment Act. Regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, there will have to be changes made to the act. I think, uh, you know, the Supreme Court could say everything's fine. The Supreme Court could say, well, this part is fine, but this part needs changes. Or the court unlikely outcome is they could say, well, it's uh, it's unconstitutional. Uh, but in all three circumstances, uh, there will need to be changes to the legislation. It it's, seems fairly clear that um, would the Ring of Fire uh, resources be developed in Ontario under the current piece of legislation? The answer is probably not. And the reason why it is important to be able to move more quickly on this is because we're not the only place in the world that has critical minerals. And there are other places in the world that could say, you know what, we have that opportunity to supply the United States or uh, you know other countries with critical minerals that are necessary 
for moving forward um, on uh, on electrification of the economy and you know reducing GHGs as a as a consequence of that. So uh, there is some urgency, and I think page ninety two. You, I'm going to read out of uh, what you said. Um, I think I think you said that it was like a word salad of progressive terms. I mean, um, <laughs> I, 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 I think if you and I were to take a chat GTP, GPT and plug that in, we'd probably get about the same kind of outcome that the federal government put into this. And I, I do concern myself with this. And I, I make this observation that, and, and I'm a nonpartisan, but, you know, I have to be able to make observations about how governments operate and, Good governments, in my view, should spend the majority of their time thinking about, testing, evaluating, uh, planning, and executing good public policy, and about 25% of their time sort of retail marketing the same. But if you've got a government that has those proportions in reverse, uh, that they spend all their time telling you what they're going to do and spending very little time figuring out how they're going to do it. That's how you end up with pieces of legislation like Bill C-69. It, it was ambitious in terms of its uh, progressive measures and outcomes that were being sought, um, but not much time spent on the practical aspects of will you be able to get anything done under these circumstances? And it strikes me that um, the uh, Canada West Foundation was you know, deeply involved in making submissions uh, to the federal government on the regulations and the legislation uh, before it was passed. And uh, there were actually some really good measures that could have been done to, you know, mitigate the, the concerns that you have uh, with respect to how the bill operated. But imagine being, say, a mining company, and it takes 16 years on average for you to get your permit approved. Let's assume that we want to have um, all electric vehicles by 2035. Uh, so let's get started today on our mine that's going to produce the material that is going to be used in those batteries. We've already run out of time. We won't get it done in time for 2035, which leaves Canada uh, sort of buying critical minerals from other parts of the world instead of developing them ourselves. So it's... Uh, uh, I. I would agree with your view that, um, you know, that, that the federal government to some degree has come to a recognition uh, in page 92. There's an admission that the uh, Impact Assessment Act, Bill C-69, has to make changes. And, and uh, I certainly encourage the federal government. First of all, it's never hard to admit that you're wrong. But having done so, I give them credit for that uh, and hope that they'll do something that's sensible so that we can produce the things that we need, um, whether it's you know nuclear out of Saskatchewan, SMRs that can play an important role in the future, um, you know uh, LNG even. I mean, one of the biggest one of the biggest producers mm -hmm. of GHGs in the world was the United States, and they did it by converting coal to natural gas. Um, in Canada, about eighty two percent of our electricity already comes from non emitting sources. But, the, you know, uh, there are parts of the country that don't have hydropower the way that they do in Ontario and British Columbia and Quebec. If you were in Nova Scotia, um, you know, almost all your electricity comes from burning coal. 
And so uh, I think that going back to your point on the Constitution, the we as Canadians often talk about our diversity of people as being a great strength. We don't often talk about our, the diversity of our natural resources also being a great strength, and it is. And whether it's uh, oil and gas that comes from uh, north, nor, you know, northeastern BC or Alberta or Saskatchewan or or uranium and critical minerals from uh, from Saskatchewan and potash, uh, or whether it's coal in Nova Scotia, whether it's hydropower in uh, you know in, in Ontario, uh, we have a great mm-hmm. diversity of resources, and uh, that's the reason why um, you know we should we, we can be um, a, we can play a great role in making the world a safer and greener world. We are uh, kindred spirits. You almost are quoting a speech I gave years ago on on Trans Mountain on respecting our economic diversity as a country and diversity is our strength. It's all aspects of diversity. And Bill C-69, Canada West Foundation did such good advocacy on it. It was so unnecessary to be that draconian because nine out of 10 premiers uh, opposed it. Industry and, and capital markets were warning about it. The U.S., the Wilson Center, put out a report uh, with concern about it. And it became an ideological struggle. And I think when the Trudeau government was shut out of of Saskatchewan and Alberta in 2019, they almost then just decided to not listen and to double down. So I think if, if, if page 92 of the budget represents a quiet but subtle recognition that their changes in Bill C-69 were, were too strong, too hard, too resolute. I think that's a good thing. Ironically, lawyers on behalf of the government defended 69 in the Supreme Court two weeks before this page in the budget. But uh, maybe my mother was right. This, this is another good thing I could say, that even though they've, they've used the word salad and they've tried to sort of downplay this major projects get shit done, as I said at the end of my essay. I think when our, our our biggest customer and our friend next door is in Parliament saying, "Let's build the most resolute supply chain in the world for critical minerals," it's recognition that the government said, "If the U.S. with the Defense Production Agreement is going to invest their billions in Canada, they better have some certainty on the return." Um, so I want to thank you for. Um, for your advocacy, I think what you've been doing and, and your style, Gary, is important to it. So final thing I'll say, if you had one top priority that, you know, you're, you're, you're well liked on all sides of the spectrum, you've got natural Alberta charm. If you were able to talk Justin Trudeau into doing one major thing quickly for Western Canada to benefit the whole country... What would that one thing? A national trade infrastructure plan that would benefit the entire country. That would benefit the entire and and provide some sense to Western Canadians that they're being listened to, and that we you know we are an important part of uh, of Canada. Uh, I'm a proud Canadian. Uh, I think most Western Canadians are proud Canadians, but they don't see themselves reflected. In the ambitions when some two billion dollars is 
allocated for national trade infrastructure and $12 billion is associated is, you know, given by the federal government for, you know, subway improvements in Toronto. Um, there are lots of people that would say that's, that, that you know, that's, um, kind of a insufficient. And, insufficient. and if, you, if you look at, if you look at our major mm-hmm. trade partners, we've got to keep pace. Prime minister is what I'd say. Um, you look at, uh, countries like, um, you know, G seven nations, they're, you know, contributing two or three or even 4% of their GDP to national trade infrastructure. Uh, we are far, far short of that. So, you know, I wouldn't be talking about a specific number, but I'd say a range, you know, a range for, you know, national trade, uh, national trade infrastructure plan and moving from shovel, you know, moving from shovel ready to shovel worthy. I mean, you've got a, a Canada infrastructure bank that has left billions of dollars unspent um, because they can't find enough shovel ready infrastructure projects to move forward on. That's how you end up with a, a national infrastructure bank spending $600,000 on a skateboard park in Gabriola Island. I mean, if there was anything that was that would trivialize the importance of infrastructure, that would be it. Yeah. Well, the Infrastructure Bank and partnerships with First Nations are on page 92 of the budget, Gary. So I think there's recognition that uh, even with the Infrastructure Bank, they have not been serious. And the world needs more Canada. Uh, from an economic and climate change standpoint, fuel, fertilizer, and food, the three Fs that, that you championed earlier, and to get that Canadian expertise and those products and services to market, we need that trade infrastructure. So great way to end. Um, you are a proud Canadian, Gary. I can say you're a great Canadian as well. You've served in public life. You've served uh, at, as a diplomat. You are known as a well-informed and thoughtful voice. So Thank you for blue skying priorities for Western Canada here today with a Laurentian region, Ontario MP. Thanks very much for having me, Aaron, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Can't wait. And thank you for blue skying this. If you want any more information on the subjects we've talked about, check out the website and check out the Canada West Foundation and make sure we build a strong and united Canada for every single part of this great country.